It is Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, how the dissolution of the DEI program at the University of Arkansas is having an impact on staff and students. We had to put a lot of time aside and begin to communicate out to each other just about like, well, how exactly do you feel about this? Plus, examining how black and enslaved people were depicted in 19th century American art. Harkening back to this bygone era that's been romanticized. So although the motivation shifted, the visuals, you know, just kept going. And how dinosaurs can be a conduit for discussions about other things. One of the things we'll actually talk about probably in the class is the westward movement of the U.S. in like the late 1800s and, you know, the whole idea of manifest destiny. A preview of a U of A honors seminar about dinosaurs. First, the news from NPR. KUAF is supported by Mockingbird Kitchen, offering indoor dining, patio dining, online ordering, and curbside pickup, Wednesday through Sunday. Modern Ozark dishes available for lunch, dinner, weekend brunch, and catering. Mockingbirdkitchen.com for information. KUAF is supported by Dr. Kathleen Wong, a psychiatrist providing infusion therapy for treatment of depression and anxiety disorders, serving the Northwest Arkansas community since 2017. Following NIMH protocol, studies show ketamine infusion therapy can reduce suicidal ideation and is an effective alternative when other treatments fail. drkathleenwong.com for information. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. I'm Kyle Kelms. I'm Matthew Moore. Ahead on our show, Deep Space and Dinosaurs. Separate stories, although now I'm curious. But yes, a conversation with Dr. Bharat Rata about the science behind dark energy and a U of A honors seminar about how dinosaurs shape our understanding of politics, culture, and more. That's in our second half hour. First today, the University of Arkansas reallocated staff of its Division of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion this June. Members of the Graduate Professional Student Council, or GPSC, released their official statement last month as a response to the university. Ozarks at Large's Sophia Narani recently spoke with members of the council at the Carver Center for Public Radio. The dissolution took existing funds and staff that were assigned to the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Division, including the Ideals Institute, and reallocated those resources into student success, student affairs, and other offices throughout campus. I spoke with Alan Brazil Hatch, graduate student and treasurer of the GPSC, along with Jeff Wright, university professor and co-chair of the GPSC DEI committee. They shared their initial thoughts and perspectives, as well as actions they took after learning of the dissolution. Yeah, I would say that I, I was a little upset and a little anxious and felt a bit betrayed. It, it definitely came as a surprise to me. And um, I think I'm still a little bit, not like overly surprised because I'm in Arkansas, but, you know, still kind of coping with it. They sandbagged us with it. It wasn't just a surprise. It was completely out of nowhere and never saw it coming. And they did it in the middle of June. You know, and I just remember being here last summer and trying to figure out, like, how, you know, how is the DEI committee and the GPSC going to survive this? Like, what does this mean for us? I mean, it was a little terrifying, to be honest. During the summer, a lot of us disappear. Some of us go home, some go travel. And so, like, as we said earlier, it seemed pretty blatant to, like, do it at that period of time. 
I would say kind of the, the struggle for us is that given that we're all so scattered, given that a lot of us during the summer spend time working on our dissertations and our thesis, we had to put a lot of time aside and begin to communicate out to each other just about like, well, how exactly do you feel about this? I think that was like the first step. Are you feeling the same way that I am? The story itself began to circulate around not just the state, but the country. I had friends messaging me saying like, hey, uh, are you okay? And so, like, I think that was, you know, as an African-American male and us having such a deep history with things like DEI, some of the pushes against critical race theory already, even the more recent African-American studies push labeling, like, the history that I'm associated with as, like, indoctrination. Those are just kind of motivating factors for me. And as a member of the graduate student government, I just felt like strongly compelled to like communicate with others and figure out like, well, I see that this isn't something that we want. What can we do to like let it be known that this is something that happened once everybody gets back? And just to like assert our position, not just internally, but like in the community and outside of Northwest Arkansas as well. I just, my email, it just erupted one day. I had already gotten the message and, you know, I was just getting like dozens of emails from friends and students asking what was going on. Like I had any clue. And suddenly this job got very, very real and suddenly very, very important. And not that it wasn't before, but it, nobody told me there was going to be a cause. And so I'm sitting there, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And what happened was the magic, because when I started reaching out to people in the GPSC thinking, I'm going to get a lot of pushback because I'm getting all these other emails like, you know, y'all are gone now. Lo and behold, there was the other GPSC members like ready to stand up. And the people that were here this summer, we did that. We came together as a group. We worked We did what we could out of legislation because we had to do something. But we had to do it with unanimity, and we had to do it with the consensus of the assembly. So it was kind of like working with one hand tied behind our back the whole time because we couldn't act until we had the assembly behind us on this. This was not, you know, funding research or, you know, approving travel grants this time. This was something that we had to have the entire assembly behind and I think that was one of the big changes for me, at least. I, I never looked outside of our committee as much as I do now because one of the things I realized was our assembly is much stronger as a group than any one committee within it. Uh, it's a shame all this is coming down on the DEI committee. Part of it's in name only. Part of it's because there are people that just want to see DEI removed from the University of Arkansas altogether. And so when I you know think about like how it's changed things, like, I mean, we're walking on eggshells half the time. We're trying to figure out what we can and can't say. We have to watch everything we do. We have to check everything we're saying now. Yeah, it's really changed the job a lot. The GPSC remains committed to keeping departments at the University of Arkansas accountable, despite the dissolution of the central DEI office on campus. They argue that DEI is vital to the well-being and success of every student. In the resolution itself, 
we pose a lot of different questions that were largely centered around what the functions of a division would actually do. At the core of it, it's it's for the recruitment and retention of uh, a diverse faculty and staff. At one point, that also included students. For us, I think that's kind of where it starts, right? It's like, so what exactly are you doing to fill the needs and wants that we as students might have from our perspective as grad students toward faculty and staff? Just to kind of hit the detail a bit, like it, it matters to me that there is a diverse staff available or someone that I can relate to, not just in like pigment, but like historically experiences. Same thing for faculty, right? Your, your dissertation work is so heavily tied to whatever the faculty is doing or might have available. And so it's just a little bit easier to communicate. You feel mentally it's, it's a bit easier. You have someone that can understand where you're coming from. And so where our efforts have been figuring out what gaps have been created, right? There's a long list of gaps, as I said. We've kind of asked questions around that. But to me, some of the important ones are like, okay, well, who's going to recruit that diverse faculty? What I've noticed personally is that there's been a bit of a trickle out, but not a lot of replacement. So, you know, what's going to happen with that? In terms of like student needs, where do we go to talk if we have an issue? Where do we go to get particular resources? A lot of us have been having to spend additional energy trying to source that out. In terms of some of the things that were in place before, like the division itself, but also ideals, you know, some of the functions that they have, or at least that they had, what happened with them? So far, we really don't know what's what exactly has happened as it relates to what was prescribed. And so kind of the hope moving forward is like after we try and kind of communicate with the people that we can, that the administration will reach out to them and just be like, hey, can you talk to us? Can we get more involved in the process and figuring out just how do we move forward? Right. Not being so stuck um, in the why anymore since it's happened. More focused on like, OK, well, there's this giant list of things that are missing. So, like, what are we doing? Diversity matters. Equity matters. Inclusion matters. I'm willing to use the word belonging, but like it does pain me a bit to think that because for whatever reason, the collective is saying that like diversity is a bad word. Right. Like the people, you can't see us right now, but we're extremely diverse in here. And there's a lot of value in that. And you could see from the resolution that we put out, you can see from the events that we'll be organizing. You can see from the efforts that we'll be putting in that we matter and, and you matter as well. Yeah, I spent the summer working with some kids that I regularly had to say things will get better. And honestly, by August, I don't think I believe that anymore. And I, I lamented that in a speech to the assembly because it made me feel so bad that I couldn't honestly say that to somebody. And so what I have to say now is things are going to get better, but, you know, again, we're all going to have to fight for it again. And to the younger people out there, I know the optics on the University of Arkansas are kind of bad right now, but that's all the more reason you need to come to school here. We need you to create the diversity that, frankly, I think people in the state want to drive out. And I know that's a hard sell, but if I could say anything to people out there, the younger people out there, is do not shy away from this. 
we need you at the University of Arkansas because you are the people that are going to make the change. Clearly, it is not the university. I reached out to the university for comment. They did not respond in time for air. The future is still unclear for those like Jeff in Brazil, who are upset about the dissolution of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs on campus. But for now, as legislators continue to fight back against DEI programs across the country, individuals who are committed to cultural progress say that the work isn't over. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Sophia Narani. Ahead on today's show, how a single painting set off a chain of events that led to a new book project for Rachel Stevens. That set me on a path to try to figure out what else there was out there that pictured the enslaved people in the South from the antebellum period. We hear from the author of Hidden in Plain Sight, Concealing Enslavement in American Visual Culture. That's ahead in just a few minutes on today's Ozarks at Large. Every day, you hear lots of news on Ozarks at Large. But have you ever wanted to test your listening skills? Now you can with KUAF's Word Puzzle. It's just like your other favorite daily word games that feature five-letter words and color-based hints. But you might even get a hint from the previous day's Ozarks at Large broadcast. Go to KUAF's website or newsword.org slash KUAF to start playing daily puzzles now. The Arkansas Department of Transportation has launched a new customer service portal. In a news release Monday, the department announced the platform is called Ask RDOT and will allow the public to submit comments and inquiries about Arkansas's highways and interstates. The portal can be found at the Department of Transportation's website. The United Katua Band of Cherokee is hosting their 73rd annual celebration in Tahlequah this Friday and Saturday. The festival celebrates the ratification of the tribe's bylaws and federal corporate charter. Festivities will include a stickball tournament, cornstalk shoot, tradition keepers award ceremony, entertainment, and an address by Katua Chief Joe Bunch. A traditional meal will be served at noon on Saturday. You can find a link to more details on our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Lakeisha Bradley is the 2023 recipient of $25,000 with a Creative Impact Award from Artist360, a program by Mid-America Arts Alliance. Bradley is the founder of My Tea by Design, a therapeutic art studio that offers non-clinical art services and licensed mental health counseling. In addition to regular studio programming, she serves the community, including the juvenile justice system, assisted living facilities, and more. She says that receiving this award is helping her keep the studio lights on so that she can continue to be a light of hope in the community. The Arkansas women's golf team finished the first round of the Blessings Collegiate Invitational with a four-shot lead yesterday. Five Razorback golfers are in the top five, led by Maria Jose Merrill with a five under 67. And Ella Anacona in second with a 468. Tournament continues play through tomorrow. And the Razorback Gymnastics team has announced their schedule. The squad will have 11 regular season meets with five of those in Fayetteville. The Razorbacks open their season on Friday, January 12th in Barnhill Arena against Georgia. The two final meets of the season will be hosted in Bud Walton Arena in March. The team is coached by Olympic gold medalist Jordan Weber, who will be entering into her fifth season. This is Ozarks at Large. In her new book from the University of Arkansas Press, Hidden in Plain Sight, Concealing Enslavement in American Visual Culture, Rachel Stevens explores how images of black and enslaved people were hidden, idealized, or altogether erased in early American art 
and popular culture. Stephen spoke with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth last month and says the idea for the book started with one painting. Up until this point, I had been working on my previous book project and dissertation before that, which were about portraits of Andrew Jackson by his personal artist, whose name is Ralph E.W. Earl. And he's a white artist, of course. And I had spent years reading letters between the two, reading Jackson's speeches, learning everything I could and reading everything I could in the in the primary source or archives about them and their lives and their art and all of that. And I came across an image that was labeled something like Negroes picking cotton on General Jackson's farm or something like that. And it pictured a series of enslaved people in the fields at the Hermitage. And I so embarrassingly thought, I've just spent years studying this topic and never considered the source of the wealth, the 108 people I came to find out who Jackson enslaved and who certainly were charged with working for Earl as well, because he also lived in the Jackson household. And that set me on a path to try to figure out what else there was out there that pictured the enslaved people in the South from the antebellum period. And that was what kicked it off. I was already working on Southern topics, but I certainly wasn't really thinking about or centering race and the history of race and art history as part of it. And it took me a long time to come to that, but I came to think of, think of it as extremely important. And in the book, you know, you talk about a lot of different types of, of concealment and ways that, that art and visual uh, images uh, concealed slavery. Um, can you talk about what those kinds of images are that were produced of or about slavery during this period and how they kind of informed how we would go on to think of slavery in the mainstream. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much to unpack there, Daniel. You've hit on something that I came to see as like a a crucial idea of the book, which is a lot of people in, in our general awareness in the United States can pull up images in their mind, racist images from the Jim Crow South that fit into very specific stereotypes or tropes that might be as painful as they are to talk about and to see things that picture happy mammies, so to speak, or loyal slaves, those types of things. And so what I started seeing, which I didn't know before I studied it, was that those didn't emerge out of the lost cause mythology or the desire to romanticize the South post-war but in fact, they were part of a much older tradition. And so during slavery, enslaved people were pictured in many of those same stereotypical ways. But before the Civil War, they were charged with justifying the institution as a positive good. They continued to look the same or work in similar ways the stereotypes did after the war. But now they're charged with hearkening back to this bygone era that's been romanticized. So although the motivation shifted, the visuals, you know, just kept going. And I was struck throughout all of the research with just how relevant so much of it still is. You know, we're still grappling with the after effects of the racist images that I talk about in the book. And I think it was in the book when you were talking about the the Virginia pro-slavery artists and all of that propaganda that sort of came out of it. And I was definitely thinking a lot about Confederate monuments today, um, like the one that was in Bentonville, that is not really of 
a specific soldier, um, but it is used to kind of justify the perpetuation of these images. I mean, was that something, were there parallels you were trying to draw in some of this to today? Oh, yeah, of course. And that's the perfect example. That common soldier monument, I think, was the type that y'all had in Bentonville and that were just peppering the South everywhere. I was writing this right during the height of the Black Lives Matter movement and in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And all of those conversations were boiling to the surface and many of them dealing specifically with those tangible monuments on the landscape. But those same like racist motivations existed in the illustrations and the drawings and the visual art of the period. But I didn't, I had never really learned about that. And I wasn't seeing that being spoken about certainly in any of the public protests or anything like that. You know, it's much, it's much more obvious to rally around a work that's been put placed in the public eye to cause harm. These were, but in a much more minor way, but the motivation for them was the same. Can you talk about some of those ways that within the within art of the time period, slavery was depicted and how it was concealed and what maybe you were interested in really looking at or zoning in on if there was one type of way? It was a challenge to figure out how to organize the material because there was so much of it and it was so disparate. The abolitionists were very organized with the primary tropes that they used, with the ways that they published printed material that exposed, all of it was meant to expose the violence and harmful nature of enslavement. So Southerners or people that supported slavery reacted to that, but in really disorganized, really piecemeal ways. And so it was really hard to approach the story because there was no concerted effort in the South to use art in the same ways that the abolitionists did. Southern pro-slavery rhetoric also was piecemeal and disorganized and catch-as-catch-can. And I really think that's because slavery isn't justifiable. And so they were having to work overtime to try to figure out how they could show it as such or discuss it as such and just throwing anything at the wall that they thought might stick. So I tried to categorize, and I do this in chapter one in the book, try to categorize the basic ways that pro-slavery activists represented enslavement. And it sort of falls into some primary tropes. I already mentioned the trope of the loyal slave. And chapter four, I believe, approaches the trope of the mammy, the happy mammy that I also mentioned The chapter is about photographs of enslaved women and the ways that they worked in support of slavery. Chapter one, I try to categorize the other ways that pro-slavery supporters discussed enslavement and the images that followed from that. And so I sort of cataloged those tropes. The work concealed enslaved people, but in lots of different ways. And so that ultimately becomes the thematic concepts that I address throughout the book, I I use that concept of concealment. So specifically, I think of the pro-slavery imagery, for example, that showed enslaved people as happy as being a form of concealing the humanity of enslaved people. But the work itself was also tangibly concealed in a variety of ways. For example, many Southerners just resorted to outright destruction, destruction of abolitionist materials, Um, specifically um, destruction of abolitionist 
buildings, <laughs> which which are exposed in prints in um, the cha- in the chapter about destruction, which is chapter two, and then physical concealment in other ways, paintings being painted on the back of other paintings, or um, I don't know, it just it just was a theme that kept bubbling to the surface in lots of different ways. Yeah, and I think obviously the the one that really you know stands out is is probably the co- the cover image uh, of Belizaire and the, the Fry Children. Can you talk about how you kind of discovered that painting and found out about it and why you wanted to, I guess, use that as the, the cover image for the book? Oh, it's such a powerful image. Mm-hmm. And thank you to the University of Arkansas Press for designing it and selecting the image and recognizing um, that because I had nothing to do with the okay. selection <laughs> or the cover. Um, they they chose it, but it's it's a powerful work. Um, I visited in, I think about 2019, there was an exhibition at the New Orleans Museum of Art called Inventing Acadia. And it was about the Louisiana landscape and the ways that art could assist in our understanding of ideas of indigenous removal and enslavement and economic value and climate change and all that. So at the end of that exhibition, they showed an image of the Belazare painting before it was cleaned. And before it was cleaned, this 14-year-old enslaved boy in the picture was painted over. But they knew that um, he was there, and the curator did a fruitless search to find the painting and couldn't find it. So there was just a note at the end of the exhibition that said, I really wanted to include this work. They're pictured in a really lush and beautiful Louisiana landscape. I couldn't find it, but Jeremy Simeon, who ultimately purchased the painting and who is a dogged collector of images of African-Americans in antebellum Louisiana, found it. It had been deaccessioned from New Orleans Museum of Art in the early 2000s. He found it. He purchased it. Long story short, the Metropolitan Museum of Art recognized the significance of it, acquired it, is getting it framed now, and it'll go on view there in the next few weeks. It fits my story perfectly because it's this this mysterious painting of this family that includes three white children and one enslaved boy who for uh, dozens of years, decades, was painted out. At some point, he was painted over. And so that story of the physical concealment, whether it be in this case, probably from subsequent generations of the Fry family or in lots of other ways that the story was just just perfect for for my story. And I'm just so delighted that Belazaire is going to be hanging on the walls of the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful image and, and definitely shows something about, I don't know, a side of this period that we don't often get to see and a side of African-American and enslaved people that we don't often get to see in art. And so I'm wondering, like, were there any other images that maybe you found or artworks that you were surprised by finding or that maybe changed your understanding of the time period or conception? Oh, man, there's so much powerful. There's so much powerful imagery in this project. I discovered, I just found so many things I I wasn't educated on before doing this research. And honestly, I, I was crying in the archives at times, just realizing how horrific the stories could be. But you're so right that so rarely do we have a 19th century um, portrait that includes an enslaved person, let alone including them in a really realistic likeness. 
So that's pretty rare. You know, I was talking about all the other, all the ugly ways that enslaved people were stereotyped. Like when I was coming through predominantly white institutions, rarely did I talk about people of color or was I taught about people of color. And when I was, there certainly wasn't an effort being made to, to individualize those people. So one thing I found that was delighted, I was delighted by throughout my research is that there's so much effort taking place out there to give humanity to these often unnamed enslaved people. So when we can attach a name and a biography to an image, that's that's really special. So when I, there's a handful of times that I worked as much as I could to uncover the humanity of the people in the art when I could. And um, there's lots of African-American genealogists who are specialists and in, in doing these things and are doing that work. You know, in the art world, I'm not very knowledgeable about it, but you are. Uh, how do people, do museums and curators treat historical images of Black and African-American people historically? And then maybe how is it changing? And how do they put it into proper context, you know? You know, historically, what I'm just seeing from my own little perspective as I go to museums around the Western world is that museums have paintings of people of color in their collections. They're also aggressively acquiring them and they are putting them on display. I was in Ireland. I was at the National Gallery of Ireland maybe about a year ago, and I had been there about 20 years prior. And so I I said to my husband when we went last year, I said, eh, I don't think there's much of interest here. No offense to, to their wonderful collection. But, you know, I, I said, I just think I remember it being, you know, mostly traditional for lack of a better word. And I was delighted to see there that there were, they had been aggressively either acquiring or bringing out of storage anything they had that showed a diversity of people from the past. And that seems to be a trend, finally, that museums are seeking to do and wholeheartedly doing. I mean, the Met with Belazare is the, the best example of this. Um, we touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but and you talk about it in the introduction. But for you, as a, a white person, you know, why was it important to do this work? And can you talk through some of, I don't know, the conflicted feelings you had at the beginning of starting the scholarship? I went in perhaps a little naively, but like I said, I sort of went in to the study just because I wanted to know more. And then as I got into the project, I did start realizing, well, you know, I am able to approach this information from an outsider perspective. And so that got me thinking like maybe I wasn't the right person to be telling the stories and looking at the images and thinking about them because of my outsider status, despite my hesitation unconcealing the concealment, if you will, was was more important than anything else. And I will say I've already had two separate descendants of enslaved people who are represented in the book reach out to me. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, what were those conversations like to get people who who are using your scholarship to like, to discover something about their ancestry and their past? I feel incredibly moved by it. I just, I love that these people are working so hard on uh, their genealogy, that they've been able to trace it back through enslavement. And that in itself isn't an easy task. And so to be able to have some oral histories from those people, and um, then for them to be able to connect themselves back through to visual culture from the antebellum period, it's 
I think it's incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about, I know you did this work mostly at, um, through a fellowship with Crystal Bridges. Um, can you talk about that relationship and, and I don't know, the process of putting all of this together? Yeah. So they offered me my first long-term fellowship to work on this project. That was in the fall of 2018. I was able to have a lovely office space there in the museum where I had the time and space and incredible library resources. They don't have a lot of material. There's only one painting by that's at Crystal Bridges that's in the book. And that is a painting by James Cranston called I think it's called Virginia Slave Auctions. It pictures a slave auction in Richmond, Virginia. Um, And they were happy to share that with me, even though it was in storage. But anyway, it was just a wonderful time and a beautiful setting. And they gave me the time to be able to think about these stories and dig in and, and start the writing process. And I think I wrote the first two chapters when I was there that fall. I was surrounded by a lot of brilliant thinkers and researchers in American art. And so that those conversations helped immensely. You know, I think the book overall is kind of about how we view popular images, popular visuals, and trusting art, and like how much we can trust this art that we see. So do you have advice for people who are going into a museum, who are examining art, or even popular images today? You know, how do we get to the real story? You know, I think it's just trying to constantly remind ourselves that artworks, even if it's a photograph, and especially if it's a painting, they're made for a certain purpose. Um, If it's an oil on canvas painting, it's made to suit a specific patron and their wishes. And so um, rarely will we look at a, a work of art, especially from the 19th century, that didn't have an angle, a political side, or certainly wasn't commissioned to fill a specific purpose. So we can't always get directly at what that purpose was. I was trying to do a little bit of that in in piecing these images together, but just to always look critically if we can and and think about what the perspective of the person that paid for it might be. Um, that's, I think, how, can, how you can get closest to the truth. What do you hope people, if they, they pick this book up today or flip through it or see some of the images and, and your words next to it, what do you hope they get out of it? I hope they can see really how hard pro-slavery entities in the South worked to justify slavery. And so we can understand the position of art history in the bigger political debates over slavery. So that's the nitty gritty of the story. But then through that story, seeing the legacies of all of that hateful racism and recognizing it in our society, I think, is an equally important lesson. All right. Thank you so much for talking to me. The book is uh, Hidden in Plain Sight, and it's out now from the University of Arkansas Press. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. That was Rachel Stevens, Associate Professor of Art and Art History at the University of Alabama and author of the book Hidden in Plain Sight, Concealing Enslavement in American Visual Culture. Out now from the University of Arkansas Press. She spoke with reporter Daniel Carruth last month. Daniel's stories are produced in the Karen Taha News Studio. Pink popcorn and a life-size doll box are just some of what you could find at a movie theater in Moscow. Despite sanctions and regardless of geopolitics, Barbie has captured Russian hearts. Ты кем? Ну, есть только Барби и кем. 
How Barbie Became Russia's Somewhat Unexpected Summer Surprise on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Morning Edition, tomorrow morning from 5 to 9. This is Ozarks at Large. Ahead, dinosaurs. Dr. Selena Suarez, an associate professor in the Department of Geosciences at the University of Arkansas, will lead an honors college symposium next semester called The Science, Politics, and Culture of Dinosaurs. A public preview lecture takes place tomorrow, and we'll talk to her about both tomorrow's talk and the seminar just ahead. But before the dinosaurs, let's go into space, deep space. Later this week, Dr. Bharat Ratra, Distinguished Professor of Physics at Kansas State University, will discuss dark energy and the continued expansion of the universe while he visits the U of A campus. When I talked with him recently, he told me there is so much we don't know about what makes up the energy of the universe. At the present time, if we go look at the energy budget of the universe, we only know the composition of 5% of it. Um, 95% of it is unknown and that part is divided up into dark energy and dark matter. And all we're seeing from the dark energy and the dark matter is that gravitational fields. And we, we have no idea what contributes to the dark energy and dark matter, whether it's just one thing each or it's multiple new things. And it's really, really interesting when 95% of the stuff out there is unknown a lot of things to discover. That unknown, he says, means it's a great time to be a cosmologist. The images collected by the James Webb Telescope, he says, as well as other instruments on Earth and in space, are giving us much more information than ever before about what's out there, way out there. And he says the relatively recent discovery of dark energy could mean we're going to learn a lot more pretty soon. I mean, dark matter has been around longer, perhaps uh, 70, 80 years, but um, the early observations um, weren't taken um, that seriously because they weren't that convincing, because the instruments they were using were not that precise. And um, people only started seriously thinking about dark energy perhaps um, 30 or 40 years ago. So I'm kind of hopeful that we'll see a lot of developments in the next 10 or 20 years um, that'll kind of match or even exceed what we've seen in the last 10 or 20 years. But no matter the advances in technology and the leaps in understanding the still-expanding universe, no cosmologist alive today will get all the answers she or he is looking for. I asked him, can that be frustrating? No, it's it's not frustrating. It's kind of interesting that we've got this... Um, thing to study, and we know we're not going to get to the end of it, at least not in the foreseeable future. And it's not clear how how things are going to end. I mean, whether it gets to the point where to check your theories, you're going to have to build instruments that are so expensive that society decides they don't want to invest in that. But I mean, that might be one possible end to the field, that you can't test anything, and then it kind of just becomes a philosophical issue. But we're not yet at that point, and um, that's kind of good because um, a lot of these techniques that we develop, especially the technology, it does have applications elsewhere. Like, for instance, um, the whole World Wide Web came out of... Um, development at um, this big particle accelerator laboratory in, in Europe where they had um, really big experimental groups that were studying um, data that were collected there. So they'd have 
um, two and three thousand people groups, and it was very difficult for them to all get together and meet. And so they decided to use the internet and develop uh, browsers and communicate that way. And that's completely changed society in the last 20 or 30 years. And some of the developments have been really great, and some of them haven't been that great. <laughs> well, that's usually the case, right? <laughs> right. For me, when I think about these distances and, and a continuing to expand universe, it can be very humbling, right? I mean, there's, we're talking vast, almost for a layperson, incomprehensible amounts of distance and matter. I wonder what it, if you ever have a chance to pause and think about, gosh, I don't want to get too deep here, but, you know, what our place is in all of this. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I mean, we, we can think about it, and um, I, I don't think, I mean, we're probably not going to be unique in that way. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it just seems that the universe is so huge that it seems unlikely that some kind of life just developed in one place. I mean, the chemistry and the biochemistry should work in other places, too. And I I don't know what it's going to be like, but, I mean, it's pretty humbling. And, I mean, then you kind of look around and you see people destroying the planet we're on and not caring about it that much. And it's pretty disturbing to see that. When you get ready to, to make a presentation at some place like the University of Arkansas, what goes through your mind that you want to get across to an audience that's perhaps some cosmologists or physicists ready and some of us who are not? I mean, how do you how do you prepare to talk to a mixed group? So um, I, I kind of um, want to, like, convey my excitement for science in general. And, I mean, I have to do this at a bunch of levels. So I'll do things that are understood by a lot of people, and then I have to say some few technical things that some of the more trained people in the audience would appreciate. And so I try to do this at a bunch of levels. And it's kind of really important to me because science is so important. And um, I mean, if you don't understand the science and the technology, you can't be a good citizen. I mean, all this stuff about the internet and energy use and going to Mars, I mean, to appreciate this in a really interesting and useful way. You've got to have some understanding of the science. And so it's kind of my hope that um, people get interested and are willing to kind of further explore the science and kind of use reputable sources to explore it. I mean, if you're not at school, I mean, things like Wikipedia or Scientific American are really good sources. I mean, there's a lot of um, kind of propaganda out on the Internet, so you have to be a little bit careful what you look at. Dr. Bharat Ratra is a distinguished professor of physics at Kansas State University. In 1988, he and Jim Peebles proposed the first dynamical dark energy model. He'll talk about dark energy and the universe Thursday evening at 5.15 in Gearhart Hall on the University of Arkansas campus. Matthew, do you have a favorite dinosaur? 
Kyle, I'll be honest with you, I was one of the few kids who was not obsessed with dinosaurs hmm. as a kid. Although I do have one, and, and it's because my favorite animal is probably a giraffe. Okay. And so by by association, my favorite dinosaur is a Brachiosaurus. Very nice. Very nice. Mine is, I think I'm pronouncing this right. I have a reader's vocabulary on it. Tropionathus, which is like a pterodactyl, but 27-foot wingspan, it's estimated. Yeah. Um, Very friendly. I don't know. Never (laughs) met one. Um, I was obsessed with dinosaurs as a child. Uh, Do you have a favorite dinosaur movie? My favorite dinosaur movie, it's also because I probably like Brachiosauruses, is uh, The Land Before Time. Ah. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you do, but that's okay. No, animated. Yes. Yeah, and then they made several sequels. They did. The I'm first aware. one's the f- the first one's the good one. I am partial to the original King Kong, which had a pterodactyl and a T Rex and a sea serpent. Yeah. But you put a dinosaur in a movie, I will watch it. That's good I, to know. I don't care how bad it is. That's why I so enjoyed talking to Dr. Selena Suarez. She's an associate professor in the Department of Geosciences at the University of Arkansas, and next semester she'll be leading an honors college seminar called the Science politics, and culture of dinosaurs. I invited her to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio recently and asked her if dinosaurs can be good ambassadors for science. Ooh, that is a very good question. Yes, but can be no sometimes, depending on your perspective. Uh, So one of the things we'll actually talk about probably in the class is um, the, the westward movement of the U.S. in like the late 1800s and, you know, the whole idea of Manifest Destiny after the Civil War, there was basically a mandate from Congress to expand out west and collect as many resources as possible. Included in those resources were fossils. Um, and it was just around the time that um, kind of the science of paleontology was uh, being established. And until like the late 1800s, it was basically the Europeans were dominating. And so in the late 1800s, when, you know, vast amounts of fossils were being found in the American West. You know, the U.S. was like, we can make our mark. U.S. scientists were like, we can make our mark. We have great stuff here, Um, which was great for science, terrible for Native American populations because those fossils were part of their history, part of their culture, part of their understanding of the origin of the world to them. Um, And so not so much of a great ambassador in that that aspect. And, And even... More recently, in like the 1950s and 60s, when scientists were going out and excavating in other countries, um, nowadays people are much more aware of that. But, you know, the idea of helicopter science, scientists coming in, excavating fossils from other countries, taking them back with them with no acknowledgement of where they came from or what the local uh, cultures or traditions are. Nowadays, I'd say they're with that understanding that most scientists have today. That's less so, and it can offer be it can be more dinosaurs can be more of a better ambassador for teaching uh, people about other cultures. So I was just working on my presentation just a little while ago, sitting across at the library, and that's one of the things I want to put in there because like I've, I've had some students come with me to other countries, and it's a great eye opening experience for them. They meet people from different cultures, different backgrounds, um, and in that case, it's a really great ambassador because everybody's really interested in the dinosaurs come from very different cultures and backgrounds, but we're all there for the same purpose. In the course, you'll be talking about cultures and and respect. What else do you cover that might be surprising to lay people? 
Um, art, um, the whole idea of STEAM, like science, technology, education, uh, engineering, math, and art, combining art, a paleo artist I am fascinated with. I, I know several paleo, paleo artists, and they do amazing work. And so students that are in the, in the art in, in, in the art world, you know, like I'd be interested in learning from them. Science communicators are more and more important these days. So um, we'll be looking at it from that perspective. And then policy, like looking at things from the policy perspective, like the Paleontological Resource Protection Act, um, and even like the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, since fossils are part of Native American culture, some have argued that, well, you know, Places like the Carnegie or Yale or Smithsonian have fossils that were taken from Native American lands that were part of Native American cultures. They should be returned to Native American uh, tribes. And so, like, these are hot-button issues that a lot of paleontologists have different opinions on and, and I think kind of broadens the perspective of dinosaurs to not just the science or the fascination but also uh, kind of the practical aspect of policy and science communication, education about science, things like that. So we do want to touch on all of these things under the guise of dinosaurs. <laughs> so when you're in Wyoming or South Africa or China, is it best to go to places where we have where fossils had been discovered before, or can there just be some? Uh, if you want to be if. If you want a guarantee of success, sure. You want to go to those places where fossils have been found before and maybe pick over sites that people hadn't, you know, sites that may have been excavated in the past but then abandoned. Um, but you could certainly also look at places where fossils are not commonly found. And usually the reason why they're not commonly found is because there's cover, like plants and things like that. Um, so, like, there's some really cool discoveries happening in you know, Japan, even here in Arkansas, like the dinosaurs from south, southwest Arkansas, you know, um, you don't find them that often <laughs> because there's too much cover. Usually you find them, you know, in quarry sites and things like that. But they're still there and they're still new. So, like, a lot of people are quite happy to go look in these, you know, previously not excavated places. Mostly, I mean, it's hard because mm. it's hard to find outcrop, but you're almost guaranteed to find something new. So... It depends on what you, which hardship you want to deal with. <laughs> Finally, I imagine you'll be able to talk, at, touch on at least somewhat climate change. Absolutely, since yeah. dinosaurs were, you know, kind of victims of it. They were. I mean, dinosaurs saw two mass extinctions during their time: the End Triassic mass extinction, which kind of opened the door for them to become the most dominant vertebrate probably in Earth's history. Um, we could debate about birds and say, well, birds were dinosaurs, so they're definitely the most dominant. Uh, vertebrate to 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 live on Earth, um, and then the end tra- uh, the the end Cretaceous extinction event, and both of those are tight, very much tied to climate change. The end Triassic extinction event was likely the result of volcanic massive volcanic eruptions, as Pangaea, the supermassive continent, was splitting apart. There were massive eruptions, uh, CO2 increase, so there was probably some extensive, initially probably some initial global cooling and then rapid global warming. So this ping-ponging back and forth between different climate states probably did in the dinosaur and uh, predecessors and allowed dinosaurs to take over. And then the end Cretaceous extinction event, obviously a gigantic asteroid slamming into the Earth is not great. And then on top of that, there were more mass uh, massive eruptions happening in 
uh, India at the time, the Deccan basalt traps that were releasing a lot of volcanic gases into the atmosphere and uh, that causes climate change. Climate change causes habitat degradation, habitat degradation and fragmenting causes extinction on higher levels. So um, paleontologists are, a lot of different schools are starting to eliminate their paleontology uh, programs because a lot of people think that, oh, well, that's just old science. We don't really do that anymore. But paleontologists are the ones that show us that there are extinction events that are tied to climate change. And so when we're talking about future climate change, it's, you know, people talk about this quote unquote six math extinction. You know, we wouldn't know there was a six math extinction and if we didn't know anything about the previous five mass extinctions. Mm-hmm. So, so paleontologists and paleoclimatologists are um, tightly intertwined and really important for understanding climate change. And dinosaurs are an excellent record for us to go back in time and look at this experiment that's happening today just in the past. Dr. Selena Suarez is an associate professor in the Department of Geosciences at the University of Arkansas. Next semester, she'll be leading an honors college seminar called The Science, Politics, and Culture of Dinosaurs. She'll deliver a preview lecture tomorrow evening at 515 in Gearhart Hall on the University of Arkansas campus. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the Writers Guild of America ended their strike after nearly five months. The relief for writers has spread beyond Hollywood. Oh, awesome. <laughs> this, is, this, is, uh, this is exactly the kind of news you hope to have. <laughs> it's been a long, it's been a long, uh, long fight, long strike, but, um, you know, uh, it's great. I'm really, 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 really happy. It means I have a chance to continue working. We'll hear how the writer's strike had an impact on the film industry in Arkansas tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large, a production of KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bella Vista, and Skylight. Contributors today included Sophia Narani, Jacqueline Froelich, Victoria Hernandez, and Daniel Carruth. Additional reporting for our show today provided by the news team at Little Rock Public Radio. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Kyle, if you had to, if you had to create a film that uh, put together uh, Deep Space and Dinosaurs, <laughs> who is going to be the top two names on the bill for your film. Really? I'm casting it? Yeah. It's Halle Berry. Okay. And me. (laughs) 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 Actually, the plot doesn't even matter. (laughs) It could be about zombies and robots. The cast is going to be Halle Berry and me. (laughs) I'm just saying. Well, okay. Well, I, I appreciate your candor there. Uh, that is not what I expected. I, I don't know why that's not what I expected. It's exactly what I should have expected. <laughs> yes, it is. All right. We'll be back with you tomorrow uh, from the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. KUAF is supported by Dr. Kathleen Wong, a psychiatrist providing infusion therapy for treatment of depression and anxiety disorders, serving the Northwest Arkansas community since 2017. Following NIMH protocol, studies show ketamine infusion therapy can reduce suicidal ideation and is an effective alternative when other treatments fail. drkathleenwong.com for information.